Lord, we're grateful that you have allowed us to come into a place where we are free to worship you and to gather with other brothers and sisters and receive the grace that we get when we open your word, Lord. Um, And we receive grace and we receive mercy, instruction and conviction. So, Lord, open our, our minds and our hearts to receive these things that you would have for us by the graciousness and the kindness and the goodness that we receive from your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said amen. amen. All right, well, go ahead if grab your Bible and turn to Daniel 3. We are in week 9 of a series called The God Who Redeems. Daniel chapter 3. And we're basically going to learn this morning that God is uncompromising in his faithfulness to deliver his people. All right, God is uncompromising in his faithfulness to deliver his people. One night last week, I asked my wife, who's in the front row here, her name's Melissa. I said, babe, what is your greatest fear? I know what some of you are thinking. You really know how to show your wife a good time, Ronnie. You know, it was a great night. Uh, But she told me what her greatest fear was. And she said, my greatest fear, I think, as best as I can tell you, as you just put me on the spot right now, is in disappointing people. She said, that's her greatest fear. And then when she asked me, um, I answered it differently, but it turned out to be essentially the same thing. And of course, what this reveals to us as we dive into this morning is the tension that Christians face between being man-pleasers and God-pleasers, or to phrase it a different way, between being self-lovers and God-lovers. And the Bible is pretty clear that even when we think we're sort of straddling the line between both, we've actually, what we've done in those moments is defaulted to loving ourselves. All right? Paul says in Galatians 1, he says that if he was still trying to please man, he would not be a servant of Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians. So this morning, we look at the story of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who chose to please God over the current ruler of the earth at that time, which was a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to look at the story of three men who chose to please the living God rather than the fake golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, created. And we're going to learn about the price they paid, and we're going to learn about how God delivered them from destruction. If you guys have even been here in the last month, we brought this new song to you guys to learn called Though You Slay Me. Um... And if you've really paid attention to the words, they're crazy words. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you ruin me, yet I will sing praise to your name. And you just sing, you just think, how can we, how do we sing a song like that? How do we sing a song like that on a a Sunday morning with God's gathered people? Are we supposed to be comforted by that somehow? Though he slay me, though he ruins me, still I will praise him. How does singing the most depressing worship song ever written in the history of worship songs, how does that give us hope? Well, it gives us hope because if deliverance is for this life only, it's not really deliverance at all. It's just a temporary fix. It's just a drug. It's just a vacation. It's just a birthday present. That's all it becomes for us. And we're also going to see in this story is how it foreshadows the work of Christ 
on the cross. So some of the background as we get into this is this. Israel has been taken captive by the Babylonians, by the Babylonian Empire. And they are now living as exiles with the Babylonians. Three of the men we're looking at today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were appointed <clears throat> excuse me, to be officials over some of the provinces of Babylon. So what happened is they were part of this group of Israelites that got chosen and brought up to be trained because academically and in terms of even their physicalness, they were kind of a cut above the rest. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and a guy named Daniel, they kind of get risen through the ranks and put into positions of uh, leadership in, in, in Babylon. Now, one of the things that we got to remember as we get into this is Babylon, man, it's a pagan country. They're polytheistic, which means they worship many gods. And so we come to today as King Nebuchadnezzar, he crafts an image of gold to be worshipped by all the different leaders and the governors and the officials in all the provinces. And of course, we want to keep in mind with that, that Israel is not polytheistic. Israelites are monotheistic, which means they worship one God. So having said that, you can imagine some of the rub that they'd be facing living in a country where standing up for your faith might cost you something. Unless your mind just immediately snapped to America and think, oh, my faith cost me something. Our faith costs us very little right now in the country that we live in. But for some, for some of our brothers and sisters who are suffering under regimes like ISIS, it's the same as it was back then. There are people in our world of which it costs them a lot to say, I will not bow down and worship you or your image, but that we stand for the one true living God. All right, so that's our setup. Let's just dive right in to Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to get through the entire chapter. What I'm going to do is read, and then we're going to discuss about what it is we're reading. 3 verse 1, it says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates. They like to do a lot of repeating here when they write. Uh, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. So don't miss the fact that the writer of Daniel, who we believe is Daniel, he keeps mentioning this important thing. This was the image. This was the statue. This was the golden God that King Neb kept setting up. All right. Verse four. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, I don't know what a trigon is, but it sounds awesome and I want one. Harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. It seems really straightforward, doesn't it? But then he says this in verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. I mean, hey, Neb, how about some appetizers? I mean, how, how about kind of getting us to this place? I mean, you just say, we got to come here. The music plays, boom, we're down, we worship. I mean, not real subtle, our boy King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages, what did they do? Well, it says it right here. They fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's stop right there for now. So King Neb, because I just cannot say his whole name the rest of this sermon, creates this massive image of gold, gathers together all of his staff, plus leaders and officials from all the surrounding provinces. And when the song comes on, everybody bows. All right, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Now, keep in mind, the herald never says you have to throw in the towel on all of your other religious persuasions. All right? Nebuchadnezzar, and he's tolerant. He's a tolerant king. He's all about diversity. But he's also the king, and he demands obedience, which means there's a bit of intolerance to his tolerance. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's not throwing a party here. It's worship his God or die by fire. And we're not talking about an incredibly gracious guy here, are we? We're talking about a guy that has laid out his demands as ruler of the land that says, what I have created, you must submit and bow down before, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Let's pick up with verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. I mean, is there anything other than a fiery furnace that is burning? There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. So first we see the image, then we see the accusation come out. So the Chaldeans come in and they do a little tattletaling. They do a little snitching. On Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not bowing when the music started playing. Now, these were dudes who were part of Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet of magicians and sorcerers and fortune tellers. They had those types of things back then, who most likely, by the way, had some prejudice against the Jewish people, especially given the fact, if you go back a chapter, Daniel schooled them in the previous chapter for interpreting one of the king's dreams that they couldn't interpret. So there's probably most likely a little bent against the way that this Jewish cohort of men came in, interpreted the dream, and Neb kind of pulls them into leadership. Now keep in mind, this is what's interesting when we look at what's going on here with this form of idol worship. There was a physical action required to worship this golden image. All right, There was a physical action that was commanded. And what we see from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they do not fall down. They do not bend at the knee. They don't let their faces go down. They don't let their bodies shift or contort down toward the image. And then men come in and accuse them for not falling face down. Which, interestingly enough, is always the case, isn't it? 
when you don't cave in to the status quo, you're going to experience accusations, aren't you? Men will hate you. Men will revile you. We remember that language from Christ when he said, they will hate you for knowing me, for loving me, for obeying me. But you know what I love about what it says here? I love about what it doesn't say here. This is what I love. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't bow, all right? But nowhere does it say that they were obnoxious. Nowhere does it say that they became self-proclaimed religious martyrs or that they made any negative comments about those who did fall down to worship. You notice that? And what we'll see in the end is that this kind of heart kept their testimony of the faithfulness of God about God and not about themselves. And we remember, we remember when Christ was accused, don't we? And we remember when he faced Pontius Pilate and remember the lack of defense he made for himself. He let his testimony speak for himself. He didn't throw anybody under the bus. He was silent. Let's pick up in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So first there was the accusation, and now comes the questioning. And now Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He's angry. What's interesting is he doesn't immediately punish them for not worshiping, which is odd, considering he said whoever didn't bow, when the soundtrack drops will be thrown into a furnace. He gives them another chance to obey him. Nebuchadnezzar says, don't sweat it, fellas. It's cool. Just make sure the next time you hear the music, you drop down. But understand what will happen if you don't. That's what he's saying to the fellas. And isn't sin always like that? Isn't sin always like that in our lives? The ways we find ourselves faced with another temptation? There will always be an opportunity to disobey God, even after we've obeyed God. It's always right there. We remember Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. The opportunity was there to please and to comfort himself and the world. But he chose to be faithful to God. And so we're seeing a model here from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that leads us and draws us to the same kind of responses that Christ had in the New Testament. And then here's how they respond as we pick up in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
So Neb questions them, and they come in with this response. With all due respect to you, O king, in matters of worship, you're not the guy that we answer to. I mean, if I'm being honest when I read this, I feel like I'd be the guy standing on the side going like, you didn't have to phrase it like that, did you? Like, why'd you have to throw down like that with the king? He's kind of helping you. He's nudging you along. He's giving you another chance. But they're unfaltering. And then you look at this phenomenal response that they have. The God we serve is able And take note of that word, is able to deliver us from both the fire and from you. This is what they're saying. Neb, we have a God, not a golden image. And then they throw down this stunning statement by saying this, that even if God, who is able to save them, does not save them from the fire, they will not bow to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And in this, brothers and sisters... And this is the heart. This is one of the hearts of the Christian in a nutshell. And it's this. We consider God's love worth more than even our own lives. They had no idea what God would do. They knew what he was able to do. But they had no idea what God would do. But they knew God, didn't they? They had no idea what he would do but they knew who he was. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love, wait for it, is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I don't know how long I have to live, but as long as I live, I will bless you. This will be the motion. This will be the action of my lips and my heart and my body and my physicalness. In your name, I lift up my hands, he says. So that's the response we get from three dudes who are in positions of power in a pagan land who had so much to lose. Man, then we see Nebuchadnezzar's response to their response. Picking up in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. I know shock, right? And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. In other words, like, man, I'm not going to, like, prepare you for this. Like, I don't have, like, the burning, fiery outfit for you. Just bind them as is. I don't care if you just, like, purchased that new jacket yesterday. You're in. You're in. So he binds them. Nebu- and uh, lost my place. Verse 20, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. 21, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments thrown in. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound 
into the burning, fiery furnace. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I kind of love this. I love this whole part of the story right here. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with so much fury that his face becomes contorted, which is another word I like and don't get to use often enough. But that's what's happening to Neb right here. And here's what's hilarious. All right, here's what's hilarious. He heats the furnace seven times hotter than before as if what? Like hotter fire is going to kill you more than just regular fiery furnaces, right? I mean, that's like throwing a guy who can't swim in the ocean instead of the pool. Either way, he can't swim, you know? Here's the more important and far more biblical point. And it's simply that, where was Nebuchadnezzar's God in all this? Nebuchadnezzar's God was failing to intercede for Neb. Neb, where's the golden image? Where is he in all of this? Where's the outrage and the wrath from your God? Why so angry, Nebuchadnezzar? The bottom line was that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't rest in the sufficiency of his God. So he had to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the furnace, which was so bleeding hot that it killed the mighty men of his army he called to throw them in. And what's interesting is that Nebuchadnezzar's God wasn't able to protect his own people that bowed down to him. And yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to get close to the fire and not lose their life even before they were thrown in. And so Nebuchadnezzar... He's astonished by this. Let's pick up in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So apparently they have stadium seating set up around the furnace Because Nebuchadnezzar immediately stands up and says, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we throw three dudes in there? And they're like, yep. And he's like, but I see four unbound. We bound them, right? I was there. You bound them. They're unbound. And the fourth looks like an otherworldly being. He looks like a son of God, which is, which is the language translated there. So what happens here is that God allows Nebuchadnezzar to see a vision of himself and show him that he is not a mad man-made image but a person who descends into the presence of those who love and serve him. Don't miss that. Right there, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a picture of what a living versus a manufactured God looks like. And man, we, we share Nebuchadnezzar's astonishment in that, don't we? We do. We should. In Christ, what do we see? But God who condescended down to us as a person to walk with us, die for us, and rise again to continue to be with us so that all might see his glory and be changed by it. And then in 26, it says, the Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors... And the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men 
The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. So Nebuchadnezzar calls them out of the fire. And all the people gathered together. All the people who had previously bowed to the golden image gather around the three people who had not bowed. Hair not singed, clothing not burned, no scent of fire. The fire had no power over the bodies of the men. Then 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Don't, don't miss that line. Who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yield up their bodies rather than serve and worship. What does he say? Any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, still an angry guy, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. He's kind of repeating what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had just told him about the ability of the God that they served. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar responds by blessing God and honoring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't believe I keep saying that without stumbling. For being willing to sacrifice their body rather than worship someone other than their own God. And then he makes a decree by saying that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be honored along with all of their own gods. Because he was able to rescue his own people. And then he caps it off by giving them a job promotion. Now take note. Nebuchadnezzar is not converted here. All right? Seeing this unbelievable miracle did not change him. He does not call out God as being the only God, the only living being that should be served and worshipped. That's not what you're seeing here. He still calls God the God of them, not the God of us, not my God. So seeing this miracle is not, did not change Nebuchadnezzar. Being in the presence of God's people doesn't save us. Coming here, sitting on these beautifully lush and comfortable chairs every week, it's not salvation. Seeing God work doesn't save us. Believing God does. And believe in God leads you to reject all the other gods who could never save you. So let me finish this morning with three very sobering but hopeful truths that we see in this story. First one is this. God always emerges as the strongest God. God always emerges as the strongest God. God was stronger than the fire, right? Seven times, the fur- we read it, right? The furnace was heated seven times hotter. They were going to burn seven times more Bernie than they did if it hadn't have been, right? I mean, we read that. 
God was stronger than the fire. It wasn't really a challenge. And what it does is it allows us to contrast the two gods, doesn't it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served God regardless of whether he saved them from the fire. That's significant for us. He was the stronger God whether they survived the fire or not. Have you seen that in your own life? Who emerges as the stronger God in your life? Who emerges as the all-powerful, all-stronger, all-sufficient God in your life? And here's something to consider. The lure to bow down, all right? We've got to talk about this for a second. Because the lure to bow down for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was probably high. It would have been high for me. I'll just raise my hand. But when they didn't bow, what they had was the opportunity to see God's sufficiency and strength. It was because they didn't cave in to worshiping a false god that they were able to walk through the fire with the living God. And just imagine how they may have justified their actions. You think about that? Just because we bow doesn't mean we're bowing in our hearts, right? What's the big deal, man, if we just bend at the knee? It doesn't mean we believe this is a living God. It's a golden statue. And yet, by bowing down, by doing that physical action, it would have meant that they were aiming to please men over God. That their fear of man was greater than their fear of God, who had the power to save them when they were cast into fiery furnaces. What a hope that is for us in our fiery trials, isn't it? What a hope that is for us. That uncompromising faithfulness of God to walk through those moments with us that are crushing us and feel like they are burning us from the inside out. God always emerges as the stronger God. Two, God is the one who is uncompromising. God is the one who is uncompromising. Now, let's be honest. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I mean, they own this one, man. They were uncompromising here, right? But they weren't perfect. And you will not always be uncompromising. I will not. I have not. Let's just talk about the day I had yesterday. I will not always be uncompromising, but God always will be. Ronnie, I've bowed to other idols. I'm bowing to other idols right now. Well, God knows that. And he will be there to forgive you for when you reject and repent of that. He'll also be there to reveal those idols you need to keep repenting of when you're a follower of Jesus. It's that uncompromising gracious and faithfulness of God. Why? Because he's jealous. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for your worship. Because he receives no glory from you bowing down to images of gold. God is uncompromising in pursuing us for the sake of his name and his glory. And some of you are just in constant states of unhappiness and distress right now. 
Some of you are just in constant states of that. Why is that? You ever asked whose glory you might be pursuing? You ever ask who you might really be bowing your life down to? Because we're miserable when we compromise God's glory by crowning something else with it. Here's the line I hear a lot. Hey, what's going on in your life? What's the struggle? Everything's hard. What's the problem? Everything's hard. How are you doing right now? Everything's hard. Let's talk about why that is. Let's talk about why this person or object or pursuit has become so important to you. And let's talk about how God has come by his son, Jesus Christ, to relieve us of those lesser gods that we grasp and we claw it and we hold so tightly and so dearly. What a hope for us that God can never be compromised. What a hope for us. So God always emerges as the strongest God. God is the one who is uncompromising. And finally, God saves us from a more lasting fire. I know it sounds like I'm about ready to get all fire and brimstone Baptist preacher here. But this is the text. God saves us from a more lasting fire. The issue wasn't the furnace. The issue wasn't the furnace. There's something far more terrible than an earthly, fiery furnace. The furnace was simply the most terrible punishment that Nebuchadnezzar could come up with. But God says there's something far more terrible for those who go through life and never have a renewed heart of worship for me alone. And maybe you're like Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you're at this weird place that we find Nebuchadnezzar where you've heard the truth. Nebuchadnezzar heard the truth. He saw these dudes. He had a front row seat. He saw their deliverance. And maybe you're like Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard the truth of the gospel. And let me just say that if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard it here, yo. But you stand back at a distance like Nebuchadnezzar and you say, that's cool. It works for them. To the degree that they embrace it, it works for them. I mean, you know, when I go out onto the street, when I hit the mean streets of Ashland, man, I won't let anyone say anything bad about my peeps at Substance and their God. I mean, I'm there. I mean, I'm not quite all the way. I'm not like some of you that are like literally dancing around during the greeting time, just stoked out of your mind to meet everybody and seem so filled with joy to be in this place. I mean, give me a break, man. I'm not all the way there. There's still other things in my life. There's still other considerations. Well, what you're saying, and not because you don't dance around during the greeting time, is that there's still other gods in your life. And it's a precarious place to be in. You know why we know that? Well, because it's like you're like those men who got too close to the fire. Right next to the people of God without believing in the God of the people. Ronnie, this is scare tactics, man. You're scaring me. I mean, you tell me. I mean, I'm not getting ready to break into an altar call right now. I'm simply calling you, calling us to repentance of sin and belief in Jesus Christ. Repentance of sin and belief 
in Jesus Christ. That was the call to Nebuchadnezzar that he was rejecting. So the call this morning, not knowing where anybody's at, and not being a church that's all about altar calls, and forcing and manufacturing decisions in your heart, but just saying, is God doing something in your heart? I can't make anything happen in your heart. I can't dance right now. I can't yell any louder. I can't try to squeeze something out of it that's not there. I have no power. We believe that the work that God needs to do in your heart to draw you into repentance is a work that only God can do. But that's the call to repentance of sin and belief in Christ who is uncompromising to save you from an eternal fire that Jesus described as the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's sobering and it's serious. But what a hope that in Christ, our fate doesn't have to be fire, but it can be forgiveness and friendship with the living God. We don't have to have the fate of those men that got burned in the fire. We can be saved, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not because we're uncompromising, but because God was faithful to be uncompromising when he sent his son Christ into the world to die and to atone for our sins. That is the great hope that we have. That is the reason why we can dance around like monkeys during the greeting time with each other. Because we have such a great hope that ultimately regardless of whether God decides to save us from any of the fates that might harm us in this world, we have a hope that proceeds beyond this world. And that's our hope. And so the question some of you need to ask is, is God convicting you of this place that you might be in that's so similar to some of the people we're reading about in this passage? And if so, will you humble yourself before God? Not needing to have to figure everything out, but will you humble yourself before God? Let him do a work in your heart. Will you repent? Will you believe in his son, Jesus Christ? That's what I would ask of you today as we read this very unusually evangelistic Old Testament passage. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you are so faithful. Thankful that you are uncompromising. Even though we don't know how you are going to play out many of the events in our lives. Lord, we don't know if we're going to be called and made to suffer in many different ways. In fact, your word tells us that we can be assured that we are in some ways. But Lord, we can trust that you will be faithful to save us from our ultimate death, which is separation from you. So I just pray for that truth because that truth changes us whether we received it 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's the truth that continues to change us today. And it's also the truth that can change us today if it's something that we've never received. So Lord, I pray for those that might be wrestling and struggling with this, that they can see the simplicity of coming before God confessing their sins with the understanding that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from 
all unrighteousness because of Christ. Lord, thank you for this glorious hope. Thank you that we can be so hopeful, that we can share in the hope that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had as living as strangers and exiles in a land that was becoming increasingly intolerant, that was becoming increasingly against what they were about. And they were unwavering. And even when we're not unwavering, Lord, you are. And we can trust in your faithfulness. So Lord, do this work in our hearts this morning, we pray. And all God's people said,